everyone, welcome to the Film for Fans podcast, your home for movie news, reviews, and movie fan views. That's right, this is the podcast from movie fans for movie fans. And tonight, I am your host, Ryan Dunleavy, joined once again by the co-host in his green red hat, Rob Dunham. Yeah, it's St. Patrick's Day. Let's get ready to party. <laughs> no, wrong holiday uh, well it, it'll happen again in a few months so i'm just you know getting a, getting ready ahead of the time that's all okay <laughs> <laughs> i like yes. to think that i so st patrick's day is one of those ones that you should celebrate all year so i you know, i'm mm-hmm. just trying to stay in the festive spirit well as an irish guy with the last name dunlevy and a giant red beard <laughs> i approve <laughs> just don't take his lucky charms oh man we're off to a great start indeed as usual well we do have a great show for you today um we will be talking about peter jackson's favorite scene from the lord of the rings uh the dark knight and a few others make it into the national film registry we will be talking about what we expect coming up from wonder woman 1984 and we'll play a Did You Know, as well as our watch list. All right, Rob, you ready to get started? Let's do it. So we're going to jump off with uh, Peter Jackson recently did an interview in which he talked about his absolute favorite scene from the Lord of the Rings trilogy that he directed in the early 2000s. And it turns out that it was not a scene that he wrote or directed. So, in this, he revealed that his absolute favorite scene is the scene in The Two Towers where the two sides of the Smeagol Gollum character actually interact with each other. Um, In this uh, column, he talks about the fact that they knew they needed a scene in which the two sides of this particular character, Gollum and Smeagol, would actually interact and would go back and forth uh, between each side of uh, his persona. And he didn't have time to do it, so he had his assistant director write one up and then ultimately shoot it. And it turns out it was his favorite scene. So Rob, what did you, uh, what did you think of this particular scene? What did you think of the fact that it was Peter Jackson's favorite? Yeah, I think this is one that's pretty iconic. A lot of people will recognize this one. and. If you're anything like me, you probably have a friend somewhere who's decent at doing the voice and does both sides <laughs> of the conversation to themselves. <laughs> it's pretty amusing to see. It's very uh, much more disturbing to see Andy Circus do it live, just his regular face, which I've seen, because yeah. it's the actual sounds coming out of a human body, which sounds <laughs> terrifying and wrong. But, you know, that's the magic of movies. And uh, I, I think that it is really something that his favorite scene is one that he didn't personally uh, write or direct. That's pretty cool. I, I don't know if I even knew that there were a couple parts like that in the movies. So to hear him say that also has to feel pretty affirming for the person who was in charge of writing it and directing it, which is very fascinating. Um, I like how in the article it said, 
these giant major scenes are not his favorite scene and they named a few of them and Helm's Deep was one and it's my favorite scene and it made me feel really basic like <laughs> yeah just these boring Lord of the Rings fans who like these amazing scenes like could they be any lamer <laughs> look at Peter Jackson he likes a scene that you've never heard of basically it's kind of how I felt you know when I was reading when I read the article <laughs> Oh man. So uh I was gonna ask you, so the Helm's Deep would be your particular favorite scene from the Lord of the Rings. Yes. Yeah, the whole sequence is awesome though, and uh Gandalf shows up obviously is the Yeah. Like that's probably my favorite moment in all of Lord of the Rings. So it'd be hard for me to have something else as a favorite, but <laughs> I I love the whole series. There are certainly smaller mm-hmm. parts that I like for what they are, but that's just such an epic point i i think the word epic gets overused but i think it absolutely applies to that sequence well and i also think that word kind of defines that series i mean when you think of an epic the lord of the rings delivered an epic um and that's one thing that peter jackson got absolutely right is the epic scale and size of that particular uh of that trilogy was was nothing short of epic and I love that. I love that that's his favorite scene because it's such a linchpin scene. You know, it's such a linchpin scene in terms of the direction that that character takes and, and how it, and how the tragedy of the Smeagol Gollum character um, comes back as a result of that. So it, it really does, it really does a great job of shaping it and the way the way it was shot and the way it was written and directed really did a great job of conveying an actual conversation with someone basically arguing with themselves. So, yeah. Um, I, it's hard for me to nail down my favorite scene from the Lord of the Rings, but there's a couple that are, are a little bit more subtle that I really like. There's one right near the beginning in the Fellowship of the Ring where they're just setting off on their quest and um, Sam just kind of stops. And he says, if I take one more step, this will be the farthest from home I've ever been. And just kind of that, that little scene in that nature of, Hey, we're going to go do this. This is, this is going to happen. And, you know, it just, it, it displays one, how sheltered the hobbits were, but also um, really just talks to and speaks to um, the nature of adventure. And so I really like that one. And I really like the scene with, between uh, Frodo and Galadriel when, when they're looking in through the, uh, the, the liquid mirror and, and just the interaction between those two characters um, with ultimately Galadriel like flipping out and then turning down the ring is, uh, was unique. So I like that one too. I also like when Gandalf first uh, throws the ring into the fire to see if it's actually the ring, because Mm -hmm. that really sets the stage for everything that happens because that's the introduction really to, to what is really lies ahead in the movies to come. Yeah, especially the way it was directed because you see they cut to Gandalf when he said, no, it doesn't appear anything. And you could see like the relief on his face and then no way. And 
perk back up. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's really good. So Peter Jackson likes, uh, likes him some Smeagol Gollum conversation. Um, but yeah, if you're, uh, send us, send us a mess, leave us a comment about what your favorite scene from the Lord of the Rings. That'd be cool if we, uh, if we got some responses to that and we could discuss a few of those scenes sometime in a later episode. So, or if yeah, you haven't seen it, feel free to leave us a message just calling us nerds because, <laughs> you know, we are, so. True. <laughs> so in other film lore news, The Dark Knight, The Blues Brothers, and Shrek, amongst a number of other films, were all inducted into the National Film Registry. They've all been added to the National Film Registry, which is um, run by the Library of Congress. They add a few movies every year uh, with the design uh, to show a wide range of, of cinema and kind of uh, some awareness of preservation of, of that particular form of art. So um, those three films kind of highlight the the list of this year. Some of them are older. We've got stuff from like 1918 and 1927, uh, along with uh, some other stuff that's newer. I think the newest one added to the list, I want to say is like 2010. So, yeah. So it's interesting. Um, I was not entirely, I was kind of aware that the, the National, that the Library of Congress did this, but it's, it was interesting reading up on it. And The Dark Knight is absolutely worthy of inclusion and preservation as one of the, the top films in the history of cinema. What, what were your thoughts? Well, somebody once told me that Shrek was going to be in the National Registry of Films. And uh, I didn't believe them, but now I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, it just, you know, uh, I had I, that vibe in theaters, I tell you. Yeah, I would. I would say that it is uh it really it really did spark off like this giant franchise and I think the thing that stands out the most about it is that it was compared to some other things a little more original. I mean obviously the tale of a monster being saved from distress is like not original but the the way they subverted your expectation in the very like very uh beginning of the movie with him going to save the princess and her expecting it to be a prince and it ended up being a disgusting ogre <laughs> was really great and uh obviously the comedic stylings of uh, eddie murphy as the donkey are what probably what probably one of my favorite cartoon characters ever just incredibly well written and the perfect person to play it so uh i'm not surprised it's not the best movie ever but i definitely think it belongs uh, in the history of movies when it comes to animation produced in this country, for sure. See, and I love the fact that the Blues Brothers is going to be there because the absurdity of that movie knows no bounds. It is, it is fantastic. I mean, these guys commit this tiny little offense and then have like the entire U.S. infrastructure after them. It's absolutely great. I mean, the comedy element of hilarious is so over the top. It's so ridiculous. It's fantastic. So many wrecked police cars. So many wrecked police cars. It is unbelievable. You got great music. It was just, it's fantastic. It's so well done. And uh, 
Well, when you're on a mission from God, you got to do what you got to do, I suppose. Yeah, it's true. And my favorite, <laughs> my favorite moment is when they're sitting there, they just played their concert. They're down in the, uh, the tunnel waiting to drive. And uh, he says, it's 400 miles to Chicago. We've got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes, and it's dark out and we're wearing sunglasses. Let's do it. So film history will never be the same. Centuries from now, people will be able to go back and watch the Blues Brothers. Someday we'll have to like dig into all the whole list of movies that are on this registry. Yeah. And maybe uh, pick out a few that we haven't, neither of us have seen and check out their qualifications. Yeah. So a couple other ones that are on the list, just to give you a few um, that are going in this year, a clockwork orange freedom riders, the hurt locker, joy luck club. Um, a bunch of stuff that's super old. Um, yeah. Cabin in the sky from 1943. I haven't seen it. Oh, classic. It's about, but Hey, have at uh, it. I, I kind of, when I was looking over that list, I was a little surprised that, uh, a Clockwork Orange was not already on the list. It's ver- certainly a very divisive, disturbing yeah. kind of movie. But I think that regardless of how you might feel personally about it, like I'm not a huge fan of it personally, but I do recognize that it's like it's uh, important to the history of film. Yeah. So I was pretty surprised that, that one wasn't already on this list considering it came out in the 1970s. Yeah. Indeed. But you never know. I mean, it's... I. It's interesting. I love to look into exactly how they choose some of these at some point. Yeah. 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 All right. So Rob, I watched this this week, which we'll get into, but it's one of my favorites coming up on the 30 years of home alone and, uh, and paste magazine did a, a commentary on, on home alone after, uh, after 30 years and uh, had some interesting thoughts on it, which I, I found, uh, I found pretty relevant. So Rob, first, did you know home alone was 30 years? It was 30 years. Uh, somewhere around there. I, I think I never really think a movie is quite as, as quite as old as it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're always surprised when you find out how old movies are. Yeah, that's true. And conversely, how old you are. Because Yeah, let's not talk about that. Follows the other. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things, one of the things I think one of the main points the article talks about is uh, it, there's there's a lot of satire to it. And it's uh it, it's written from a little bit of a curmudgeon standpoint, but uh I, it's interesting because it talks about the fact that you know if it, a lot of people have to deal with family and you know, most people enjoy that, but not everybody. And some people have to deal with family that they don't like or family that's dysfunctional or family that have to get along with. And you just kind of have to put up with. And it's almost always told, stories like that are almost always told from an adult perspective. So the idea that you'd be a kid having to put up with your annoying family and what that means to put up with your annoying family as an as a eight-year-old kid, I think is pretty cool. Yeah, I think we all have had moments, even if you love your family, where you kind of wish you were in the situation where you were just by yourself just for an hour, relaxing by 
either the fire or the gas heater or whatever it is with a open box of new pizza that you just stole from the delivery guy or didn't pay him enough or whatever happened <laughs> in that moment. We'll never know. Um, but yeah, I find it, the thing I find fascinating about that movie is like, he's so wanting to be by himself and away from everybody. And then when he finally gets what he wants, it's terrifying. And I think that's a good lesson for us that be, be careful what you wish for. We always hear, but um, especially around the holidays, if you are around family that maybe might not be your favorite, just remember that it's a, you know, it's a privilege or a blessing to be able to be around them at all. And at some point it won't be the same and we never know when that might be. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's this kid fantasy. And in which case, and a lot of times we don't, you don't, we don't often think about anymore about how often, you know, kids just have their world dictated to them. They don't have a lot of say and they don't have a lot of control, which ultimately is a good thing because they would kill themselves because they're disaster areas and don't know what they're doing as, uh, as you, you can attest. <laughs> I think my children would eat all of the snow in the entire world if I had not told them about 30 times today to not eat the snow that's just one example <laughs> so it's good that we don't give kids that much autonomy at the same time like it has to feel a little bit disempowering and so it's it's interesting to see kind of the reverse of like this kid fantasy play out where he all of a sudden has all all the power and he gets to do whatever he wants and, and to make the most of it So I, and I think just the, what's fascinating about when you watch it, when you come back over it is the, just the brute level of violence in the movie. I mean, they just absolutely just beat the heck out of these guys. It's, it's fantastic. Frank. Yeah. They would have definitely been in the hospital many times before the end of this movie. Yeah. If it were to occur in real life. Yeah. For sure. I think I think the uh, the most tragic part of Home Alone is the fact that you know he he gets his dinner table set up right before the last scene. He gets the dinner table set up. You know his his microwave dinner is there, hot, piping hot. He's got the candles going and he's all set up there, ready to eat. And then it rings nine o'clock and he has to go into battle. And that wonderful meal just sits there on the table uneaten. Mm. tragic it's tragic <laughs> you know i mean what do you do <laughs> so home alone yeah home alone is just fascinating for whatever reason i was i was actually kevin's exact age when this movie came out so i think there's a reason for me as to why why I resonate with this movie so much because i was his exact age when the movie came out so it felt like a like a little more personal to me on that front. <laughs> um, another, another thing, if you're into, if you're into these type of histories, um, there is a great uh, Netflix. There's a great thing on Netflix. Uh, there's, it's a number of episodes called uh, movies that made us. And one of them is about home alone. And it goes into all the production things about uh, the behind the scenes and home alone, how the movie came about uh, different little anecdotes 
Uh, like the fact that the first studio shut it down because it was going over budget, but they'd been secretly negotiating a back studio. And so as the first producer was running around to each of the departments telling them we're shut down, the director's coming along right behind him telling him they're back up with a new studio. So it's just, it's, it's worth checking out. So uh, on Netflix, uh, movies that made us edition about Home Alone. Well, thank goodness they revived it and didn't let it, you know, die and not see the light of day. Yeah. For sure. All right, so let's move on to our discussion items. And we are, by the time this debuts, we will be exactly one week away from the debut of Wonder Woman 1984. So Otherwise known as Christmas. Otherwise known as <laughs> Christmas. I mean, we think of it as Wonder Woman 1984 debut day, but it does happen to also be Christmas. <laughs> it was a little weird like five years ago when we were telling everybody about it being that day when the movie didn't even exist in anyone's mind yet but you know we're, we're just good at seeing the future like that i know that's how we roll <laughs> so yes wonder woman 1984 comes out on christmas which is a little over a week oh man crazy to think about but this is the first major release since tenet and it will of course be on both hbo max and in theaters if you're in one of those places where you can go to a theater not me unfortunately so what are we expecting? There's been a lot of hype around the movie actually coming out, but what are we actually expecting from the movie? Do you, do you think that it's going to be good? What are you hoping you see? Uh, what do you think is going to be in it? Where, where do we go from there? I'm nervous about it just because I don't trust DC as much as I trust Marvel. And I think uh, the one thing is I think the, the two DC movies I've seen that I really enjoyed were Wonder Woman and Aquaman. Mm -hmm. So the fact that it's one of the two that I thought was really well done kind of gives me a little more hope than I might have for a different franchise. Um, I think that in the last few movies they've done, DC has tried to add some more of the like humorous element, tried to make it not as dark and gritty and menacing as some of their earlier ones. So we'll see how that progression continues. Um, it's, it's certainly going to be an interesting sell with, uh, the new bad, uh, character that's coming in who has not been involved in the movies at all to this point. So it's going to be introducing a whole new thing. And so we'll see how that goes. Um, I'm excited to see it. I'm just not sure how good of a movie it's going to be. I guess we'll see. I mean, the, the trailers kind of make me feel not super... I guess, hopeful that it's going to be a great movie. Um, I think it'll be an enjoyable movie. Whether or not it's objectively good, I think, is a different question. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm anticipating it being good. I am. I'm anticipating it being good. Like, like you were saying, I think what they've done so far with the Wonder Woman and then also with Aquaman characters has been really stellar and has been really fantastic. So I think they're on the right footing with those characters. Uh, I love the fact that Chris Pine is coming back. It'll be interesting to see how he's coming back exactly and how it is that they get him into 1984. Um, one thing I'm hoping is that we actually get an understanding of why 1984. I know there's a lot of like revived nostalgia from the era. 
so that there might be interest among fans. But I'm curious as to if they're going to actually explain why this movie is taking place in 1984. Um, are they going to give us a credible reason why, basically, why the movie exists? Why are we seeing a movie set in 1984? So I'm hoping that they do a good job answering that. I mean, I think it'll be fun to look back at the era and, and see what they do with it. Um, I like the opportunities that they're going to have to kind of do the reverse of Wonder Woman where Chris Pine is showing her around London and, um, you know, she's getting into all sorts of trouble, not having any idea what to do in that scenario. And now fast forward and she's bringing him into 1984 and we've already seen from the trailers that there's going to be some scenes along those lines. So the fun reversal of characters will be, will be interesting and could create for some lot of different moments. I, I am also skeptical of the, the bad character in this one. The cat, the kind of cat woman type thing. I, I don't know. I'm, we'll see. We'll see how that goes. I'm, I'm not sure how that's going to work to create, uh, to create a level of menace there. But, uh, I'm a bit disappointed they ruined the Chris Pine fashion show in the trailer because that looks like it's going to be really funny. And yeah. I think it would have been a lot funnier if we didn't know about it before seeing the movie. Yeah. But, you know, they, they have to choose some things to be in the trailer, I suppose. Yeah. So we'll see. Maybe, maybe, there's, a number of, there, maybe there's a number of scenes like that in which, uh, in which we can partake of. But, uh, yeah, I, uh, my, my wife and I had actually went to see uh, went to see Wonder Woman in theaters before the theaters in PA shut down. So it was nice to get a refresher on that one before this one comes out. So anything else you're expecting? Are you expecting them to do anything um, relating to upcoming movies? Are you expecting any of that to set up for set up for later movies for DC? It's hard to really say because, like, I mean, it's it's kind of beaten to death at this point, but the comparison between Marvel and DC is Marvel just seems to have a much more coherent idea of what's going on. And every movie, there's going to be something that ties it into another movie. And with DC, it's kind of been hit or miss as to what it is. So will they have something at the end in the credits that like teases something else? Will there be a character that shows up in the actual movie? It's, it's hard to really tell. I I guess my, my expectation would be that there would be something in the credits um, to tie into something coming, but I have no idea what it might be. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see because with, with the length of Wonder Woman's character, how long she's been around, um, there's a lot of opportunities to set something up in one direction or another. Um, it's still, it'll be interesting to see how that, again, how that 1984 timeline fits in with anything else that they might be working on. So, yeah, I am looking forward to the opportunity to see it. So it will be fun to watch. And actually, because my wife actually liked Wonder Woman, I think there's a chance I might be able to watch it with my wife. <laughs> nice. Rare for comic book superhero movies. <laughs> <laughs> she has a very limited window of things she likes. And so I'm, I'm glad that this one got in there. <laughs> Her exact quotes, I think were, I really liked it despite the action. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 
I'm sure the the producers and director of the movie would be really excited to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> High praise right there. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So now we're going to do something fun. Um, every once in a while, one of us will say one of these facts to one another, or you come across a little bit of movie trivia or something that comes up. Uh, kind of an interesting behind the scenes thing fact about a movie. So we're going to call this segment, Did You Know? And it's going to be fun bits of interesting behind the scenes facts that you may or may not have known. So we're going to go back and forth on these and we're going to, each one of us will lay out one particular one and then we'll ask each other if we knew that before this moment or before today. All right. Rob, you ready? Let's do it. All right. Why don't you go first, actually? Okay. So one of the things about movies is that oftentimes when they're being worked on, they uh, operate under different titles while they're filming. And this is kind of, you know, a well-known thing in the business it's called a working title. There's actually a production company called Working Title. You know, it's the ubiquitous kind of thing. Um, Star Wars being known as Blue Harvest is one well-known one. There's a whole bunch of other ones. Um, but one that I found fascinating just because it's a slightly different twist on things is that the movie Snakes on a Plane starring Samuel L. Jackson was actually supposed to be called 121 Pacific Air. <laughs> and Samuel L. Jackson took the movie role because of the working title Snakes on a Plane. And they, they actually used the working title as a joke because they're like, well, what's this movie about? It's about snakes on a plane. And so Samuel L. Jackson was so in love with the name Snakes on a Plane that they changed what was going to be the actual name of the movie to Snakes on a Plane. So I thought that was really something. And aren't we all glad that, that they did? Yes. <laughs> did, you know, did you know about this before today? Because I did not know about this. You know, I think I had heard something that Snakes on the Plane was kind of like shoehorned in, shoehorned in there. Like, it was kind of done as a joke. I don't know that I knew that it was actually the working title uh, yeah. prior to the, the movie's release. So, yeah, that's a good one. I like that. Uh, so, my first one involves one of my favorite Christmas movies, Die Hard. Now... Die Hard, the, the Bruce Willis role actually had to, was, and had to be offered to a then 73-year-old Frank Sinatra first. Now, why is that? Now, first of all, can we all picture a 73-year-old Frank Sinatra crawling through air ducts <laughs> and shooting up all sorts of bad guys? <laughs> yippee ki mother. <laughs> Just yeah. see him singing it right now. So the reason the reason why they actually had to offer the role initially to Frank Sinatra is because the film is actually based on a book, and that book was a sequel to a book and film that was actually made in 1968 called The Detective. And the lead role in the movie The Detective was Frank Sinatra. And because this was technically a sequel to that movie they were contractually obligated to have to offer it to Frank Sinatra. Now, thankfully, Frank Sinatra said, yeah, no, I'm not. I'm going to turn that one down. Thanks for asking. But 
I need to watch the Die Hard prequel now because I didn't know it existed until right now. So yeah, I did not know this until my wife told me about this last week. And you're the one with the movie podcast. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> so that's one from Die Hard. What, what else you got? Uh, so another one that I think is really neat is uh, the movie The Matrix. Everyone knows the crawl at the beginning of the movie with the uh, foreign characters going down the screen with like the black, black and green computer screen effect. And I think a lot of people think it's just random pieces of computer code. Uh, but it turns out it's actually a sushi menu <laughs> that the one producer's wife gave to him and said, why don't you try and use this? And so he programmed it to put it on the screen and run down the screen. So I'm sure if uh, someone can actually speak the language, they, they may maybe be able to catch some of that as it quickly scrolls down the screen. And uh, unfortunate for them because they'll probably get really hungry. Yeah. <laughs> All those people, they made it suddenly hungry for sushi and they didn't even know it. wonder why I want sushi right now. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I like that. That's fascinating. And no, I did not know that. I was not aware that that... that I actually did thing. know that one before I researched. The thing is that there are a lot of these little movie facts that I hear, uh, they, they don't stick in my brain because there's so much stuff already there, you know, that I'll, I'll say, oh, that's neat, and then completely forget it. For instance, that I knew... Uh, I, I said to my wife, hey, did you know that the character from the old guard, the bad guys, the same person who played Dudley Dursley in the Harry Potter movies? She said, yeah, I remember when you told me that like six months ago. And I said, oh, <laughs> I didn't realize that I knew that before. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> Weren't we talking earlier about getting old? <laughs> it was probably uh, what I think happened is probably while we were watching the old guard, I looked him up on IMDb mm. and I probably just offhand mentioned to her, yeah, this is the guy who played Dudley. And like, I've only seen the Harry Potter movies once, so I don't think that my brain connected exactly who that was. Yeah. But then seeing him on screen, like, because he is so much different yeah. physically. Yeah. Like in the Harry Potter movies, he's this gigantic, um, cumbersome boy. And in the old guard, he's like this light, skinny, uh, techno crap bad guy. Yeah. It's like, that's the same person? What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. As it like a Christian Bale level transformation there. All right. So my next one comes from Indiana Jones. And this is one of, this is one of my favorite ones. It was from the Raiders of the Lost Ark. There is a scene in which he is searching for Marion and he's running around and the bad guys are chasing them. And then all of a sudden this big dude with this giant sword appears and he starts swinging the sword around and going crazy and then all of a sudden, Indiana Jones pops off and shoots him. And the guy just falls over dead. And you see him resume his search. Well, it turns out that that was actually supposed to be a legitimate fight scene where they were supposed to go back and forth and fight each other. But Harrison Ford had like 101 fever at the time. He was just not in the mood. So he just pulled out his gun and shot the guy. And the actor, like the true professional he was, rolled with it and just hit the deck. And they ended up keeping it in the final shot of the movie. Yeah, he didn't shoot him in real life. The, the guy was still alive. Yeah, no, days. blanks. <laughs> Always use blanks. Unlike so, uh, uh, I, one, one more that I've got is that uh, it turns out that in Field of Dreams, the characters who play the ghosts were actually people. <laughs> but no, that's not my real one. I just thought it'd be funny to, <laughs> to throw one in there. <laughs> These fake ghosts. 
Oh, Let me tell you, I'm sick and tired of it. Yeah. Um, but uh, what was the last one I was in? Oh, yes. My, like, my, one of my favorite movie trivia facts, and uh, it's well known as a nerd trivia movie fact. A lot of, most people who are really, really into The Lord of the Rings know this, and it's kind of a joke that uh, it always gets brought up when the scene happens because the joke is that if you really know Lord of the Rings and you're watching with someone who doesn't, you, like, poke them at this scene, you're like, do you know what just happened there? Like, you know, you get this tingling in the pit of your stomach, like, I'm about to reveal the great mystery. But uh, Viggo Mortensen and the Two Towers, there's a sequence where the hobbits are kidnapped and they come across the remains and detritus of the ambush here and there's all kinds of metal and armor and burning and lots of dead people and um he's he gets so mad and he's so angry and he kicks one of the helmets and he like screams like this agonizing scream you're like whoa that is some amazing acting well it turns out like he actually broke his foot as he kicked that helmet so he wasn't acting (laughs) (laughs) But it was so good that they kept it in the movie. Much like when my band recorded my music video and I fell over trying to jump off stairs, which was not (laughs) planned, and they kept it in the music video. (laughs) I guess the best acting is when you're not actually acting. It might be. Yeah, I'm I'm sure that could not have felt very good for him. No. And uh, my next one is actually along very similar lines. And that is uh, from Mission Impossible Fallout. Uh, there's one scene where Tom Cruise is running across the top of a building and he's, he's chasing uh, the one character he's running across and he has to jump from one building to the next. And you see him, he jumps and kind of hits the side of the building with his foot and then grabs on. You're like, Oh, well, it turns out he actually broke his foot on that. Ah. They actually had to do the second half of that take like several months later and it really, really annoyed the director because he just couldn't get the lighting quite right because it was a whole different season. And so the lighting just wouldn't work. And so he's still not happy with this. But yes, Tom Cruise actually broke his foot when he jumped and hit the other building. Well, there's uh, no doubt that Tom Cruise, whether he is the same person or not, is wholly dedicated to throwing his body around for our enjoyment. So mm-hmm. I'll certainly always appreciate that. Also, fun fact is that he is almost the exact same age John Voight was in the first uh, Mission Impossible movie. Uh, Which, wow. <laughs> I've just got one small one before I move on to going back to the working titles. This is just amusing to me that the working title for the Avengers was Group Hug. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. Just and then we got to Civil War, which was the opposite of a group hug. <laughs> it was a group fist fight. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> All right. So um, is it my turn or is it your turn? Well, that, that was my last little one. So if you oh. have another one, go ahead. Sure. Yeah, I got another one. Um, the Let me see which one I want to use. Um, all right, so this is, we'll do another Christmas one, and we'll do this one from Home Alone, since we've been talking about Home Alone. Um, Buzz's girlfriend, Wolf. The picture of Buzz's girlfriend is actually, they, the, John Hughes and, the, and Chris Columbus, the director, felt so bad about like 
actually using an actual female and, you know, calling out her appearance in such a way. So they had the art director's son dress up in a wig and, and the clothing <laughs> and take that photo. He agreed to do it nice. uh, so that they did not have to humiliate um, a little girl by calling out her appearance. So Buzz's <laughs> girlfriend is actually an art director's son. <laughs> wow, Home Alone ahead of its time, gotta say. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I mean, so we mentioned Home Alone. Uh, a lot of people know this one already, I think, but the the sequence with the pizza where Kevin is watching the old movie and fast forwarding through the different lines is from a not actual movie. Yeah. It's from a short film called Angels with Dirty Souls that they recorded themselves just for the movie, which I think is really cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's one of those fantastic little side project things that, uh, that creates a level of authenticity to the movie overall. Well, that was fun. I enjoyed that. I feel thoroughly enriched mentally after that. <laughs> so I've learned many things that I can forget that I remember that I knew three months from now. So, so how many exciting. of those, I know that there was maybe only one of the ones you talked about was I aware of before tonight. Um, what about the other? What about you? Were you aware? I think of I actually vaguely knew all of the ones that you said, except for the Frank Sinatra one. Hmm. So I have to go out and watch the detective now so I can see. Frank, John McLean, Sinatra. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if there's like any bearing whatsoever. I probably not. I, I, I would guess, my guess would be that the action sequences are probably minimal in that movie. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to the watch list. Uh, movies that we watched from last week. Rob, what did you watch last week? So I had said uh, maybe last week or the week before that I was going to go through the Harry Potter movies. Yes. And so I've watched The Chamber of Secrets, Prisoner of Azkaban, and Goblet of Fire, and actually paused. Uh, uh, why am I blanking on the next one's name? <laughs> the fifth one. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're halfway through it, and I paused it to record the podcast. Yeah. Um. But regardless, uh, what's really cool is my daughter is watching, my daughter and son are watching them with us for the first time, okay. covering their eyes a fair amount of the time because they're, they're scary parts. They get right scarier there. and darker as you go along. Yeah. Um, oh, Order of the Phoenix. Order that's, of the Phoenix. That's the yeah. name of the movie. And uh, so what I really, uh, I've, I've enjoyed being able to watch the movies through their perception because uh, seeing their reactions to things and you know, getting those feelings about certain characters being surprised by certain things or being jump scared by certain things like Harry Potter opening the door and Ron and Hermione being there, not like evil, crazy things trying to kill him. Um, the movies are just really well, really well filmed, really well directed uh, across the whole series, um, going from director to director. And uh, so I've, I've really just been enjoying that and probably finish that up this week so we're on the order of the phoenix right now and when i'm done recording we're going to go back and watch that and it's funny i've only i've only been through the series one time before so i had kind of forgotten that dolores umbridge existed and then i just saw her at the beginning <laughs> of this movie and i got like irrationally upset <laughs> like that might yeah. be the most 
well-written evil character in the history of movies because when I see her, I just want to break things. Yes. And <laughs> no joke, this character had been on the screen for about a total of a minute and my daughter goes, yeah, she's got to go. <laughs> <laughs> my 10-year-old daughter. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, that's how bad this character is. It's what the, the, the actress played that character disturbingly well. Yes. <laughs> Very much. Um, I also I also uh, watched the Santa Claus oh, with Tim nice. Allen. I'll probably watch the other two before Christmas. Man, I haven't uh, watched the Santa Claus in so long. It's been way yeah. too long since I watched. That. Such a good movie, so classic. Yeah, and really epitomizes the experience of trying to provide a good holiday season when you're by yourself as a parent. And uh, Tim, I, I would argue this is probably Tim Allen's best role. I think that. It, between this and home improvement, he's either most known for one of those two things, depending on who you talk to. Yeah. But he just really commits to it and does a great job as the character. And it's absurd and like makes me laugh every time I watch it. So one of the ones that I actually didn't use for trivia actually talks about uh, Tim Allen and the Santa Claus. And one of the things they said was that he actually had to maintain character with the kids around because some of the kids actually did believe that he was Santa Claus. So he couldn't go out of character whenever he was around them. Because <laughs> he didn't want he didn't want to uh, diffuse them of their Santa Claus belief. <laughs> That's awesome. Ah, so for me, uh, this was I did in fact watch Home Alone. As and we spent a lot of time talking about it already, so I won't go into much. But I would say the one last thing that's just fantastic about it is the score for that movie is just next level. It is off the charts amazing. John Williams is such an amazing composer and the score really amplifies that movie. And um, that, uh, that Netflix one I was talking about, Movies That Made Us, actually talk about how they ended up with John Williams doing the score for the movie. So it's well worth your watch. But John Williams, amazing. Yeah, some people like Duel of the Fates, but I'm all about the Home Alone soundtrack. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Definitive John Williams right there. Yes. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, so I did actually start the John Wick trilogy. I did not complete the John Wick trilogy. I actually only got through John Wick, uh, the first one. And one of the things that just very fascinating about it, I mean, these are classic action movies. But one of the awesome things about it is it elevates the action uh, movie to, to a much higher genre like there's an actual elegance to it. There's an artwork to it. Uh, it's the way the scenes are shot. The cinematography is fantastic. The lighting in some of the various scenes is just creates tremendous amount of mood and atmosphere. Um, the way they, the way they do the soundtrack and, and the score underneath it, the, the music in the background kind of just continues moving the, the movie forward with a level of pace and a level that keeps keeps the the emotion elevated and keeps the keeps the intensity up um and even the fight sequences you can tell they were well designed they were well thought out there's there's um like a martial arts type aspect to it uh the way it was shot and filmed and acted so it really is like a master class in how you create an action film that actually looks good on film and that actually creates a level of sophistication to it instead of just, hey, a bunch of stuff blew up and people got shot. I think we talked about this with uh, 
with Ava and uh, Jessica Chastain how it can be difficult sometimes for us to find an actor or actress believable when it comes to action. Yeah. Like them walking around with a gun or throwing their body around. Uh, I think one of the things that makes the action in the John Wick series so believable is that Keanu Reeves is like a legitimate certified marksman. Like he is someone who goes out on the gun range by himself, like as a hobby. <laughs> He's well known in the, uh, the shooting community as being like one of the best, if not the best actors at uh, like properly shooting guns, properly reloading things, like knowing how to make things look realistic because he actually knows how to operate the weaponry. And I think that is a big factor in these movies of making it look realistic because he knows what he's doing. Yeah. So it's, it looks natural because it is for him. Yeah, for sure. Um, and the last one I watched and it's, it's movie adjacent as it were was I watched the second uh, Netflix documentary on holiday movies that made us. And this one was about elf. Um, so it does a great job of walking through how elf was developed and how elf was created Fascinating thing about it, the original studio that had the rights to the movie uh, wanted Chris Farley as a huh. uh, buddy. And the writer hated that idea so much, he let the contract lapse <laughs> so that he didn't have to make a movie where Chris Farley was the uh, was buddy. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's fun to see behind the scenes on some of the classic Christmas movies. Yeah, that movie would uh, not be the same without Will Ferrell as Elf. Mm -hmm. And what's funny to me is that I have a few friends who don't really like Will Ferrell. And almost universally, if someone doesn't like Will Ferrell, you'll, you'll, you might hear them say something like, I really don't like Will Ferrell except for an elf. Yeah. <laughs> because Maybe it's just because we expect uh, Christmas season in the movies to kind of be a little more absurd and childlike and like, full of wonder and he really brings it to that character because that's just his wheelhouse and i guess it's more uh reasonable or acceptable in that place for some people than to see him running around on uh on a speedway track with just his underwear on and a helmet <laughs> screaming for oprah winfrey to come save him a little too much for some people and what's fascinating about it is it came like they filmed this they filmed Elf with Will Ferrell after they filmed Old School, but before Old School debuted. And oh. Old School was really the movie that kick-started Will Ferrell's movie career. And so there was a lot of trepidation about Will Ferrell in this role because people didn't think he could be a lead actor in anything. And they, you know, believe it or not, there was a time when Will Ferrell wasn't a, wasn't a big movie star. And... I'm glad they did. I'm glad they did because there is a there's a level of genuine honestness to Will Ferrell that not every character has. Like he has, he is. There's a warmth and a heartfelt nature to Will Ferrell that we see in some of in some of his random movies that not a lot of comedic actors can bring. Chris Farley certainly does bring it. I mean, Chris Farley's hilarious, but he doesn't have that same kind of um, warmth. So I'm, I'm glad it turned out the way it did. All right, Rob, what you watching this coming week? Well, I'm, uh, as I said, I'm probably going to finish off the Harry Potter series. Um, planning on having a couple of kids from youth group over the, one of the next couple nights. So we'll watch something then. No idea what. Um, 
And I, I'm going to see if I can find this, the detective mm. starring Frank Sinatra somewhere. Cause now I'm really intrigued. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for me, I'm going to finish up the John Wick series. Hopefully watch uh, numbers two and three. And I want to watch a Christmas Carol. I don't know yet which version of a Christmas Carol I want to watch, but I do feel like I want to watch one of the versions. It's been a couple of years since I've watched uh, the Christmas Carol. So I think well, the good news for you is there's like a billion of them. So there is, you definitely have your options. I remember one, one, one thing I remember really well is uh, watching the Jim Carrey, uh, like live, live uh, life and like, like lifelike animation version Mm-hmm. And it was rated PG thirteen, I believe. And watching it in the theater, and there was like a mom with their little like three year old kid, and there's this really terrifying sequence at one point uh, with Jim Carrey and the ghosts, and this kid's like losing their mind <laughs> in the front of the theater. I'm like, maybe you shouldn't have brought your kid to this movie. I don't know. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. But parents gonna parent, you know? They are, you know. And sometimes you just need to scare the junk out of your kid for no reason at all. That's why my kids really didn't go to a movie until they were like seven years old. So, <laughs> All right, Rob, you got anything else for us today? I do not. I'm ready to go back and watch more of Dolores Umbridge and want to break things. <laughs> Have at it, man. Enjoy that with your family. All right, everyone, that is the show. And thank you for checking out the Film for Fans podcast. Uh, Rate, subscribe, share with your friends, comment and give us your favorite scenes from the Lord of the Rings. Uh, Visit us at filmforfans.com and check out all of our great content there. Until next time, enjoy the movies. Yippee-ki-yak, other buckets.